welcome to Tete Tete's fourth episode. And today, Tina and I are going to be talking about censorship. Specifically, we're going to discuss the contribution of censorship on the movie industry based on an article, The Good Censor, by Anthony Ellison. You can check out the article reference in the show notes. I've also included in the show notes Wikipedia's summary of the Hollywood Production Code of 1930, and this was used to censor movies from 1930 to 1968. You'll see a list of don'ts, most of which seem pretty restricted by today's standards, and I feel a few are actually racist, uh, one prohibiting topics such as sex relationships between white and black races, and another one explicitly banning white slavery, which is in itself, I don't think, is bad, but it does kind of infer acceptance of black slavery. And interestingly, it also bans any willful offense to any nation, race, or creed, which seems to support censoring racist views, but that might be what society deemed racist at the time. So, I don't advocate codes that are racist, but I don't feel this comes down to a choice between bad rules and no rules. I'm not saying bad rules are better than no rules. I'm just saying better rules are needed, even in an industry that replaced the production code with their current rating system, which uses ratings like G and PG and R. My beef with the current system is that it only offers guidance and not any real censorship. And I guess most people know movies rated PG or PG-13 can vary in content. So you really have to do your homework to ensure your kids aren't exposed to inappropriate images or language, which I feel really isn't uh, realistic unless you want to keep your kids in the closet. Um, Even cable TV, which is a different beast altogether, um, is something our kids are exposed to, and there's not even a rating or censorship with that. So here's where we enter into our discussion that's inspired by Anthony Ellison's article, The Good Censor. And Tina's going to give us a summary. Welcome, Tina. How are you? Hi. <laughs> we've been off uh, line here for about a month because um, we've been pretty busy. So we've kind of recalibrated here and hopefully we'll be back on track. Alrighty. So today we're going to talk about an issue related to an article that we were reading that was interesting, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Called The Good Censor. And yes, it is about censorship, um, specifically in in uh, the arts though, like the movies in particular. And it was an article that was in our Magnificat, our September issue of the Magnificat. Anyway, it's basically, uh, I'll just summarize, it's about um, the story of this priest whose name was Daniel Loisius Lord. He was a Jesuit priest and he was a popular writer amongst Catholics and even non-Catholics in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. He died yeah. in 1955. Um, but anyway, He was um, actually involved in the production code for Hollywood, which started in 1930 and was in effect all the way up through the 50s. The article basically just talks about his background, what led him to be part of that censorship movement, which was also called the temperance movement, interestingly enough, back then, you know. (laughs) Temperance makes me think of the uh, prohibition. I know. But... Just difference in what ex- people are exposed to in the arts. So it just talks about that and the effects of that on the movies and on society, and then the effect of that after well, the production could fell away, the effects of that on the movies and on society. So basically, yeah. I've got a question. So maybe I don't want to interrupt your summary on that, but why 
would they at this point, because we think of the 30s, I think in 1930, things were pretty squeaky clean, especially compared to today. Why on earth would anyone be thinking they needed to censor anything? You know what? If you look at movies in the 30s even, I think, and I, I only remember this from... You know, Emma and I like to watch old movies together, so we were surprised that some of the old movies had as much stuff in it as you know as they do. Compared to today's standards, it doesn't seem like that was anything. But just even having a scene of passion, like wild passion, you know, or vulgarity in language, which it could be um, cuss words or might not even be cuss words, you know, it's just vulgar language. This language that's just not polite language, you know. There's there's actually a lot more of that in some of the really old movies than you would think. Oh, wow. Yeah. The movies in the 40s are probably way squeakier clean than the movies from the 20s. The 20s was a really risque area, era, believe it or not. <laughs> and um, it's silent movies mostly, but there's stuff in those movies. <laughs> Which, by the t- standards of the time, would have been like, whoa, that scantily clad woman and the kissing going on and, you know, just some of the stuff for the standards of the day yeah. and where it was going. I think people were concerned about that. So sort of a different era. That, that actually had an effect on the movies. In the article, people stopped going to the movies. So It was wow. affecting the money they were making in Hollywood. So and that's that the real... Part, it was an economic uh, reason for the production. So code. there's the real there's the real reason that <laughs> so, Hollywood would bother caring. Yeah, it's interesting. But you have to remember that that's a reflection of society, too, or our American society at that time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people were, were concerned about that. It's interesting that that production code started, you know, in 1930, which is right at the year after the Great Depression started. Technically, people were starting to feel the effects of that, you know. It wasn't like everyone was in full, the full throes of the Great Depression yet. It had only been a year, but people were starting to see that and get concerned, you know, about economics. And when people go through, that's, that's always the way it is, when people go, or society in general goes through something really distressing, they start going back to their roots and they start caring about things that are really important in life. So it's interesting that it happened that then. Yeah. And it stayed through, it, it stuck through all of the Great Depression era, all through World War II era, and for a little while, the post-war era, all the way up to sometime in the 60s, whenever it fell apart. It started to fall apart in the 60s. So, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> just It's just interesting, too, that they would get a priest... So how would they, you know, so they selected, I don't know how, so this guy was yeah. a writer, so he was known. That was one thing that kind of makes sense. And I assume because he he was a priest, he yeah. probably wrote on <laughs> well, good moral popular, values. And he was popular. So, so I kind of think of him as sort of the Robert Barron of the 30s, the Bishop <laughs> Barron of the 30s, who reached out to the popular culture, kind of knew what was going on. Maybe, I don't know if he had a commentary on movies and stuff. In articles he may have written because he was a, he was a, yeah. a a known author. Yeah, of and his it time. said in the article that he was actually friends with one of the uh, I don't know if it was, someone who was involved in, also in the code, but who worked in Hollywood, and he was a secular. I can't see who it was, but he was friends with this person, so maybe that was his connection too. Yeah, he had he had, I know he had had a connection, and and I wasn't sure if that was from just remaining friends with him. 
or if that was something that was prior to his, you know, them asking him to come aboard. But I imagine that he had the he had some articles and yeah, he probably that did. he had published that they had read that they realized oh this would be a good guy to us out. And he's kind of an interesting guy. I mean, just his the background, his history. From what I read, you know the well, it's, his history was probably more typical of what how people were raised back in that time that i think that's what's that's a lot large part of what's lacking now and that's reflected in people's tastes in the arts and also in the fact that people they think that censorship is bad at all costs yeah that anything goes yeah that the that you know, you know that, who are you to tell me what i should what code i should have for making yeah. a movie and and it's not about you know it's it's like we we're talking about. There's, there's freedom. I mean, freedom of the individual goes way too far, sometimes, and there's it, it responsibility that we have as, as individuals to our fellow man. Well, America's, you know, for good and bad, based on individual freedoms, and I think that's so ingrained in us that any kind of censorship is considered evil. And but that's what's interesting is that less than a hundred years ago, that wasn't obviously was not the case yeah. in the arts. Yes. You know, at least. And so, so what this guy, you mentioned he was, well, he's just unique about class. him. So his background is just, he's, yeah, he's, he's just a middle class guy. And it's a regular guy who had a regular upbringing. Yeah. Although I, I have to say, I mean, we say middle class. When I, I remember reading that article, it sounded like they were just barely making ends meet. I mean, they're, they're scraping money to, together to but get by. His class. dad worked 12 hours a day, six days a week to make men's meat. So. But I think they, the point of that was that maybe everybody they were did also that. from an era when people worked really hard and they didn't have expectations of getting things, getting something for nothing. It said that his his father was a shopkeeper and his, the children ran a lot. I mean, he grew up in Chicago. It doesn't say when he was born, but I'm guessing right around the turn of the century or maybe even the 1890s. I know they were scraping money. They did like buy a piano. They did. I think the thing that impressed me about his books. life, and this kind of ties into his idea of what truth and beauty and had this cold code thing, is that he grew up in poverty or maybe well, middle class but lower end had, middle class, like right? They had what they needed. They, they had what they needed, needs. right? They weren't in want. They, were, but they, they, they got by. But yeah, they were. But they, like you said, they, yeah, this is the father worked 12 hours a day, six days a week for a salary that kept their heads just bobbing above water. Yeah, <laughs> see? The whole. So it reminds me of my upbringing, is why I can think about it. We were always just had enough money to get by. We did not have a lot of money to where we, we never went on vacations or anything like that. But the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm bringing all this up is because the mother specifically took the time to make sure her kids had that exposure to the beauty and the arts mm-hmm. reading to them read classics. classics to them yeah right so they, they were exposed to the classics and reading right which is something that doesn't happen too much today um frankly um even in our schools there's uh also uh his mom had got a piano so that yeah. they could play music and that they were exposed to that mm-hmm. so the music and the arts I'm not much of a music arts kind of guy, to be honest with you, but I can appreciate the fact that somebody is trying to get their kids exposed to something, the beautiful of the culture, you know? There is beauty into music and, and art and mm-hmm. literature. And so anyway, this kind of helped form him. Thoughts were on what is beautiful, what is good, what isn't so good, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was from a very some, somewhat humble beginnings, but he learned that stuff. 
And evidently, he was very successful because he had written a lot of articles. He's got a lot of attention mm -hmm. for his opinions and enough to get even Hollywood, which, you know, they're, they're not just going to pick anybody yeah. to come help him out. He got their attention somehow. Right, he got yeah. their attention. So here, here's somebody that really had a word to say about what's beautiful and, and what's good. And, and, and it's something that he pulled on from his humble beginnings. Right. There's something else, too, that I want to mention um, about this, because it wasn't just the art, exposure to the arts, but the, the quote that he has in here, people would say, why do you always talk about homes and not houses? Homes, as in, it wasn't just that his mother exposed him to this stuff, but it's, if you think about it, playing playing the piano or doing read-alouds, as she did, she didn't just hand her kids a book and say, here, go in your room and read this. They gathered around her in the evenings, and she read it to them. And then they would have family discussions. They would gather around the piano and sing and play and enjoy the music together as a family. They did things together as a family, and I would argue that that is also something that's changed and lacking in our society now, yeah. is the family time. Even amongst families that spend more time together, there's still a lot of running around. And I mean, we're guilty of that, too. So, we are. You know, know. It, make, it reminds me of yeah. us because in, in a more watered-down version. And what I mean by that, you read to the kids. We read stories to the kids. I mean, together as a family, even as teenagers, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not so, not so sure we did that as much with Joni when Joni was with us. But we definitely do it with Ian and Emma. I'm sorry, Joni. And basically, you read like those Agatha Christie novels or things and other novels you've yeah. read to, as a family, and then we talk about it. And I was amazed, to be honest with you. I always see the eyes in Ian's head just roll back into his head. Sorry, Ian. And I understand part of it as a teenager. I can remember like, oh my God, they're going to make us do this? Are, seriously? Are we going to have to listen to this? But then what I found surprising and interesting is they get into it. I was just amazed how that quickly that turns around once you start reading and then we have the discussion. Yeah. Ian was more in, in enthusiastic than anybody about it, which is encouraging. And then you talk about just the music stuff. Well, I, I'm not, I, I'm terrible at following a tune myself. Kids play music and stuff, but we don't really get together and sing. So when we're talking about just the, the reading and stuff, I think we do a, a good job of that. But we also have that component of hey, what's on Netflix? Or, you know, we spend a lot of time watching TV. That's a problem, I think, for a lot of families. Yeah. Versus standing around the piano yeah. and playing, singing songs. I mean, I mean, granted, you know... We do the reading thing, though, at least. 120 years ago, people didn't have a lot of options or temptations to do other things. You had to make your own entertainment. Yeah. That was part of it. But there's something to be said for that. Yeah. And there's and it's okay to enjoy a show of Frasier and laugh together. Not once if that's in a blue, once, once in a while. Yeah, once not in a while. Every night. Yeah, it's, every night is your go-to. Um, yeah. There's no interaction there. Yeah, unless it's worth discussing afterwards, and it leads to some kind of family discussion, yeah. which a television show or a movie can do that. Can do that too if it's quality and tells a good story or brings up a good point about something, but. You know, sitcoms are usually mind candy. They're not. Well, and, and that leads, you know? I guess that leads me to my point, which is that here, guy growing up obviously in a whole different century than, a, mm -hmm. than my kids are, being exposed to things through discussions of reading and music and growing and understanding what's good and bad versus this day and age, on frankly, I don't have a lot of respect for what's on the television or in the movies because. Mm -hmm. 
it's a graphic. There's graphic sex. There's gra- There's um, nudity. There's just it's blurring of the lines yeah. between what's right and what's wrong, coarse, what's good and what's bad. Coarse, coarse if not yeah. vulgar language. A lack of respect. Despite our society so focused on respecting others, but portrays women in a disrespectful way, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So you end up with this whole different paradigm we live in that's different. So you don't really see the beauty and the good and the stuff like you did mm-hmm. a century ago. And of course, it's so easy to disregard that as old-fashioned and just kick that off to the side. Because yeah. why are you guys going I back to 100 modern, years? Yeah. And we're, this is yeah. the modern times. Get mm-hmm. with it, you know? But, I, I mean, that's also because people think that rules are limiting and stagnating instead of seeing them as a way to keep you towing the line in the, in the direction you should be going so that you can be the best that you can be, you know? I mean, this this a little offline too, but I mean, that's I think that's a large part of why we see people dropping off church, the Catholic church, but mainly, but you can see it in Protestant churches too. I mean, people don't want to follow God's off. Or any religion. Yeah, they don't want to follow. They don't want to be constrained. You know, yeah. they don't want to follow any rules. It's like, well, the rules are there for a reason to help you become the best person that you can be. It's kind of like, yeah. would you raise your kids with no rules? Is that constraining your children from, from becoming the best that they can be by making rules for your home? No. <laughs> what crazy parent would not have rules? <laughs> <clears throat> the issue that someone will come up to me with is like, well, those are your rules, they're not my rules. I have a right to make my own rules, which I, I understand that that perspective. But the problem is, you don't have any rules. You're just your kids are being raised by Hollywood and the TV and social media. Well, I'm talking about rules in a more like sense of, do you have a curfew? Do you have to, you know, are you when are you allowed to have your friends over? I mean, that's. You know, I was just thinking in terms of, that. that's inappropriate to watch, you know? Yeah. Well, why yeah, that, why is my eight-year-old kid being exposed to sex on television? Yeah. I think that's inappropriate for everybody, not just for my kids. So anyway, so anyway back- yeah, so the rules thing. So there's a lot of things that come into play in this whole idea of censorship. The interesting thing is, is that once they implemented this, which, by the way, Hollywood was having, I guess Hollywood was having a lot of trouble with uh, attracting people to theater at this time. And so that's why they, well, I guess they, they were advised that, Hollywood was advised that, hey, you need to tell, you know, you need to get back to telling decent stories and not just sensationalism on the screen. So, and that's what's interesting to me is they were trying to protect families and children from corrupt and rotten entertainment, as it says in the article. And, back, in the, back in the 30s. Yeah, so pa- it says Hollywood turned to him to write its production code. It took four years to do that. And the point of that, the, the, the point of that is that the films, instead of focusing on sensationalism, they were focusing on telling the story. Now they had to focus on the stories because they couldn't do anything else. They had to focus on the story itself. When you look at the quality of the movies, and that's, it's interesting that people still call that era without even realizing what they're <laughs> implying by calling it this, that era, as the golden age of Hollywood, the great classics movies, you know, 1939 alone came out with, I don't even know, they had a list Interesting of movies that, here, Interesting that know? that period fell under the censorship era. Yeah. Tried to be the golden I mean, era. 1939, Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Stagecoach, Goodbye Mr. Chips, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. 
those were all just one that one year. I mean, you could think of a whole bunch of you know other movies from the 40s and the 50s. I mean, you can pretty much watch any of those movies without worrying about yeah. what you're being exposed to. You don't have to worry about it. I don't have to sit there and read some detailed review before I let my kids watch it. You know. <laughs> It's exhausting keeping and, and, up with all the stuff I have to protect them from. And even know? even on the stuff that you just that squeaks by, like okay, I'll just let them watch this. There's always something in there. There's either some brief nudity or certainly some sort of vulgar language. I'm just seems to yeah. be there's always going to be some word in a couple yeah. words in there, and usually there's some sort of suggestive scenes that mm-hmm. might not be graphic sex by say, but just suggestive stuff. Yeah. And I'm not a prude. But if you have a little kid, it goes over their head. But still, yeah, it's just, it's there. I'm going to read a little quote here, if you don't mind. Sure. So we can talk about it. It says that, So it wasn't that the films were made by saints. In fact, many of the actors and directors were, were decent people, but they were a lot closer, and they were a lot closer to Father Lord than we might suppose, because they also had grown up knowing physical labor and worshipping, you know, in religion. Um, they, and they knew service in the army. They had grown up with stories and music. They drew upon the same middle-class and working-class morality that gave strength to Father Lord. They had not been schooled into stupidity. Here's the thing. The directors had to tell stories. They had no choice. The actors had to learn to suggest more than they said. When every other scene flashes naked flesh and every other word is coarse and blood and computer-generated idols abound, and when you can't hear the music for the explosions or the explosions for the music, (laughs) why do you need a story? The story is the scaffold for the corruption, or it just gets in the way. But when you have to tell a story, you may end up telling a great and deeply human story and people may learn to listen to. And that's when you saw it. The proof is in the results. That's what came out of that was all those great movies that tell great stories. And what was interesting, too, is, you know, he was talking about how during that era when people cared about what they were being exposed to, there there was higher quality in the schools, you know, and specifically because it's the... You're talking about our Catholic faith, specific about the Catholic schools, the Catholic hospitals, and seminaries were all flourishing during that time as well. And it's interesting how everything just fell apart in the 60s. And it's just been it's, a downward trend. It's a sexual sense. revolution, which is supposed to have freed everybody, right? It's just, yeah. yeah. It, and all it's done is, is constrained everyone. It's, yeah. it's just... It, we'll, do a, we'll do a whole separate episode yeah, on that. It's just really... Because uh, I think that's a worthy topic as well. But anyway... Um, yeah, so he just talks about, you know, that's just the moral decline and the decline in the arts go hand in hand, you know. Well, and then you can see it. I'm not trying to get off in the weeds again here, but you can see it in the in modern art as well. I mean, when they have uh, excrement in a can and call that art, yeah. you know, anybody can call anything art. And I just think that's... Yeah, that's ridiculous. I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. And, and yeah, I think people are, are afraid to, to say, yeah, say that. People are afraid. They're afraid to say, no, that isn't art. That's garbage. Yeah. And why do I, I'm not going to look at that because now it's such a relativistic uh, viewpoint on everything that's permeated through our whole society yeah. that you are not, it's, you're pushing your values on someone else if you're saying you're looking at garbage. And what's frightening is that if you dare to disagree, if you dare to stand up and say something about it, 
you could lose your job, have threats against you. I mean, that's... Within Hollywood, yeah. 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 Well, or just in society. I mean, look at all the people that make comments on social media and just people who don't even know you. Yeah. In general. It's a scapegoating, you know. That's yeah, that's like, why I'm not on social media because it just it just it just participating so bad, in the mob. Yeah, the, the social media is, is the mob. It's like the unruly mob that's going around lynching people at random. Yeah. Randomly just, picking people or having to do something and hanging them publicly. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, if you were to go on social media and say this art is garbage, you might get that kind of pushback. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine this Father Lord nowadays, if he dare, I mean, yeah. for one thing, that would never happen, but even if Hollywood, let's just call, there was an element of Hollywood that wanted to <laughs> yeah. listen, you know, to his suggestions. And, well, just, I tell you, you know, the, the most the most offensive thing that I've ever heard, actually heard about 10 years ago, and I wasn't even that religious, to be honest with you, at that point. The most offensive thing I heard was in arts... Some guy was painting pictures of the Holy Family having sex and doing all kinds of outrageous um, things that were sexually yeah, you uh, don't have oriented. The right. And see, if if you had done that's I always I always see how <clears throat> sounds like I'm just saying everyone's beating up on Christianity, but you couldn't do that with the Muslims without having an outrage, right? And and rightfully so. Right? So let's understand why the Muslims get so pissed yeah. off about yeah. you portraying Muhammad. You know, I wouldn't go around killing people for it. But at it's, the same time, I understand the outrage. someone's beliefs. But you, I saw nothing of that yeah. in the Christian community. There was no, there was some people that were up, that did say things like they were outraged. But it wasn't, it didn't hit headlines. They're afraid to say anything. Well, yeah. it's, it's just an acceptance, too. There's just a, just a general acceptance of, in the arts... Of anything, probably great works of art that are modern that I don't quite get. I understand that, but there's also I can see what's garbage and as well. It kind of comes back to the notion of what's good, true, and beautiful, and part of the problem there is it's become somewhat subjective. That yes, what's considered good and what's considered beautiful can't there can be you can argue that to some degree that they're subjective either because not everyone's going to think the same things beautiful or the same things even good but I think good can be if you're talking about you know whether or not that dish that you made that you cooked is good some people might like it some people not we're not talking about whether you like it or not when we talk about good here we're talking about goodness virtue we're talking about higher level things here but it also comes down to the fact that people don't believe that there's absolute truth anymore it's a very risky thing to say that you believe that there's an absolute truth because then you're saying this truth is what's true. And if you think differently... That means that somebody's wrong. wrong. Yeah, that means that somebody yeah. is wrong. That there's absolute truth. That, that means there's, there's something <laughs> wrong, that someone's wrong, that someone doesn't believe. Yeah. yeah. So... <laughs> and I never really thought of religion and beauty having anything to do with each other, to be honest with you, until I did a lot of reading with Robert Barron, who talks a lot about the beauty, talking about the beautiful. There's an absolute beauty where it's, everyone can agree that's beautiful. And it's beautiful. The beatific vision of God, right? So when, I know the people that probably don't believe in God, the beatific vision of God where you end up being in the presence of God, that's such a beautiful vision, there's no denying it, right? So there, but there's 
there's elements of that on Earth. You can look at nature and say it's yeah. beautiful. Most people would look at a beautiful scenery and landscapes and say that's absolutely yeah. gorgeous. That's beautiful, right? Yeah. So there is absolutely. There beauty. is, yeah. And you just have to acknowledge it, yeah. Instead you know? of saying somebody threw uh, literally excrement on a canvas and called it beautiful, and everyone comes along and smells it and says, "Oh yeah, it's beautiful," because they, because who am I to tell you that it's crap? <laughs> but anyway, probably gonna have to wrap things up. We're out of time. We're out of time, so it's been a beautiful discussion. <laughs> we will hopefully be back on a regular schedule. Tina's going to go to Austin for a week. Anyway, we're just going to sign off. We'll see you soon. Take care and God bless.